Hello, welcome back to the ancient art of modern warfare. I'm Chris Mayer. I can't help but use a little Wagner when I'm going to talk about mercenaries. I took a break from these podcasts to work on a paper for the UN Working Group on Mercenaries about the rise of quasi-mercenary organizations. I co-authored the paper with Dr. Jovana Yezdemirovic Renito of the University of Porto, Portugal. The paper, at 10,000 words long, was well enough received that I was asked to present it as part of an experts meeting of that UN Working Group to be held on April 1st. The date should have been an indicator that this was not going to happen. And sure enough, right after the president announced a suspension on flights from Europe, the meeting was canceled. As I record this, we don't know if the meeting will be rescheduled for another date or if we can do it by video link. While that is being decided, I have podcasts to produce. And this one is the presentation I would have made to the UN Working Group. And yes, I can compress the meat of those 10,000 words into 10 minutes or a little more especially since I touched on most of these issues in previous podcasts. If you listened and took notes during podcasts 2, 3, and 4, well, you've heard most of this. If you haven't yet heard them, this podcast is a good introduction. In those podcasts, I said mercenaries, international volunteers, and other non-state armed groups have been part of armed conflict throughout history. However, the rise of new quasi-mercenary organizations presents a very modern threat to peace and stability. These non-state or semi-state combat providers exacerbate instability, undermine the state monopoly of violence, and delegitimize contractor support to post-conflict stability operations. Governments, international organizations, and other stakeholders can and should work together to address these threats and preserve the gains made in the legitimacy and accountability of private military and security companies, or PMSCs, over the past 15 years. I'll begin with a little of the past to set the stage for the present. The rise of the modern nation-state included a need for the state to assert a monopoly on the use of violence in the area over which the state claimed dominion. While mercenaries, privateers, militias, and private regiments continued into the Enlightenment, these entities were strictly controlled by the state. The French Revolution changed that. The state now claimed sole ownership and not just the authority over the means and methods of warfare. This revolutionary idea spread quickly, but it wasn't equally embraced by everybody. The United States resisted it with its reliance on state militias, privateers, and a distrust of placing too much power in the hands of a central government. Imperial Russia also maintained the use of state-sponsored but not state-owned military force, such as the Cossacks. All governments continued to use some form of mercenary-like capability. Mostly, these provided special tactical or technical expertise, such as scouts, and beginning with the U.S. Civil War, aviators. Even the mass mobilization of World War II only overshadowed but did not eliminate the use of mercenaries and mercenary-like organizations. The end of that war began a period of decolonization which changed the nature of private combat providers. Historically, mercenaries worked for a state paymaster. It was clear who that paymaster was and mercenaries were, at least theoretically, under control of the state. In post-colonial conflicts, states might be the ultimate paymaster and mercenaries might broadly work under state direction, 
but finances and authority were deliberately opaque. This created a threat to the state monopoly of force, and governments took action. Treaties and conventions appeared to prohibit mercenaries, and I mean appeared in both meanings of that word. Some of the states negotiating these treaties, or conventions, were also sponsoring mercenaries in some fashion or another, so the conventions had to appear as though the governments were outlawing mercenaries in general, while not specifically outlawing their mercenaries. This duplicity is clear in the definition of mercenary in all three anti-mercenary conventions. There is a cumulative requirement of five or six elements depending upon the convention, all of which must be met for someone to be a mercenary. Proving all of these requirements is difficult. The trials that did result in conviction for mercenary activity were also accused of gross human rights violations in obtaining those convictions. Also, the burden is entirely on the individual person. There is no accountability for a state that hires mercenaries. Despite these faults, however, these efforts did produce an anti-mercenary norm that limited, but has not eliminated, the use of mercenaries. In the post-Cold War period, attention returned to armed civilians and armed conflict. These civilians, now called private military and security companies, did not directly challenge the state monopoly of violence, so the issue was identifying existing international laws that applied to these actors, the legal and normative limits on the functions they could perform, and state responsibility to regulate and control them. Although this work was still state-centric, states now sought advice and counsel from other parties, including academics, human rights organizations, and the PMSCs themselves. The outcome was a non-binding framework acknowledging existing international law and encouraging states to implement policies, law, and regulation to assure that international laws and norms were upheld. Unlike the anti-mercenary conventions, the product of this effort, the Montreux Document, addressed state responsibility and, to a lesser degree, the responsibility of PMSCs as corporate entities. Follow-on efforts included an International Code of Conduct for Private Security Service Providers and an International Management and Operations Standard for PMSCs. These focused on the PMSCs and were true multi-stakeholder initiatives. Once those initiatives were accomplished, however, major states regarded the objective as complete. Further development continued on the inertia of what had been achieved, but without further impetus, progress gave way to entropy. As engagement by state actors waned, the issue changed again, with the appearance of putatively non-state armed groups active in armed conflict. Russian-affiliated entities such as the Wagner Group are only the best known of a dozen or so Russian-affiliated groups. Similar organizations are hired or recruited by Iran, the United Arab Emirates, and others. Unlike PMSCs, they have shadowy organizational structures with limited or no economic or criminal accountability. These organizations sometimes perform roles similar to PMSCs, but they also engage in combat and suppress domestic disturbances in support of despotic regimes. In most cases, they clearly work for the interests of a state, but without any effective evidence chain to that state. This enables that state to deny responsibility for the actions of that organization and sometimes to pretend that they don't even know these organizations exist. 
In some cases, these same organizations also appear to operate outside of the explicit direction of a state and may take actions, including combat, that seem to further the interests of some private actor or the company itself. Although they fight in combat, these organizations carefully avoid one or more of the other essential elements of being a mercenary under the anti-mercenary conventions. They don't meet the definition of PMSC either, as combat is outside of the scope of PMSC services under the Montreux document or its follow-on initiatives. As I said earlier, in many cases these organizations don't have a corporate structure which is an essential feature of legitimate PMSCs. They are, then, neither mercenary nor PMSC. Despite these differences, most media, some academics, and not a few governments, notably Russia, deliberately equate these quasi-mercenary organizations with PMSCs that operate in compliance with Montreux, the standards, and applicable national law. These quasi-mercenary organizations, or QMOs, present two threats to international stability. First, by operating at the edges of existing international law, they facilitate or prolong armed conflicts and prop up authoritarian regimes that are guilty of known human rights abuses. As I already mentioned, this is done in a way that allows state sponsors to deny accountability for that activity. Second, the deliberate misuse of the term PMSC to describe these organizations undermines the legitimacy of genuine PMSCs and the progress made in regulating their activity and promoting responsible and accountable behavior. This is not unintentional. It gives QMOs an advantage in competing for business since these non-standards compliant companies can operate at lower costs than legitimate BMSCs and with less oversight and scrutiny. The use of the term PMSC to describe these QMOs misappropriates the work done to improve the reputation of PMSCs without emulating the practices that earned that reputation. Developing states and private sector actors needing PMSC services might hire QMOs thinking that they are just less expensive versions of Western PMSCs. This may drive legitimate PMSCs out of the market or lead them to abandon Montreux principles and assume QMO business models. In the end, the true nature of QMOs will be undeniable harming the reputation of the entities that hired the QMO and tarnishing the image of genuine PMSEs. This will delegitimize PMSEs and make it more difficult for governments or the private sector to use them. To counter the malign effects of QMOs and preserve the gains made in responsible and accountable use of PMSEs, Major government users and providers of PMSC services must renew efforts to assert the state monopoly of violence. The work of formal intergovernmental organizations, such as the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe and the UN Working Group on Mercenaries, and less formal initiatives, such as the Montreux Document Forum, need to address the challenges of QMOs and separate them from the achievements of the Montreux Document, the International Code of Conduct, and international standards. States legislate, regulate, and are responsible for enforcing the law of armed conflict, so they must lead. Like the successes regarding PMSCs, this renewed effort also needs a multi-stakeholder component, incorporating the advice and counsel of the PMSC industry, human rights organizations, academics, 
and private sector purchasers of PMSC services. Without this re-engagement, there's a very real risk that the QMO model may prevail over the best efforts of the previous two iterations to maintain the state monopoly of violence. In closing, I want to mention some of the other experts who were invited to that expert meeting in Geneva. These include Dr. Chris Kinsey of King's College London, Dr. Candace Rondeau of the University of Arizona, Sergi Sukankin of Jamestown, and Dr. Mohammed Janabi of the University of Aberdeen. Each of them has written in-depth studies of quasi-mercenary organizations, even though they may not call them that. Not yet, anyway. It's well worth taking your time to read some of their works. For our next mini-seminar, we will hear some more about contractors on the battlefield from Doug Brooks. The interview is already recorded, so there's no excuse for it not to be posted a week from now. Please come back for that.